Mike Kading is the founder and CEO of Norhart, an innovative property management and development company. Norhart is committed to shaking up the industry by challenging the traditional methods that have led to subpar results. Mike is on a mission to improve the resident experience by changing the way construction is done. He is also focused on reducing costs and delivering modern, high-quality living spaces. In this episode, Mike shares how he got into the construction industry, his insights on the problems with conventional construction methods, how he's been able to greatly reduce costs in the construction process, as well as his plans for growth and ambitions of becoming a unicorn company. That's a billion dollar company, if you didn't know. I actually grew up in this line of work. My parents started uh, the sort of the seed of what our business is today. And they built uh, small real estate, small apartments early on. But I went off to college. And just as you said, I went off to study computer science, mathematics, management, and a couple other things. I was very involved, very vested. It was in, we were doing virtual reality research 10 years before anyone knew what virtual reality was. It was amazing. And my dad always wanted me to join this business, but I, I didn't want to jump in. And the reason I didn't want to jump in is I didn't want people to think it was given to me, right? So I didn't work past my own ego on that. But deep down, I always knew I always wanted to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. And when I looked at the things I could do, I looked at what this business was and realized I could take this and turn it into something that could have a meaningful impact in the world. And so that's that's really what got my, me jumping in. And, and now we're doing that. Yeah, I mean, so the construction industry was always in your blood. You just were kind of rejecting it for a bit because you're like, I don't want to have that whole nepotism behind me type thing. Yeah. I, I could completely understand that. It's the same thing with me. My dad is in the creative industries, has always been in the creative industries. And then I was like rejecting. I was like, no, I'm going to be a finance guy. I'm going to make the money over there. And then, you know, fell on my ass and, and jumped back into podcasting. And I was like, oh, this is where it's at for me. You know, this is what gives mm -hmm. me life. But for you, you are running a construction company or a construction i don't even know how to really describe it you'll probably do yeah. a better job with than me but norha is kind of at its core wanting to create a better way for people to live exactly so we design build and rent apartments but we are really about driving down the cost of housing we're already producing apartments at about 20 to 30 percent less than others and we think we can hit 50 percent. but think about what that means that means someday your rent could be half or your mortgage payment could be half. And here in the United States, like the housing is a major crisis, right? Uh, the amount that we're spending on housing is growing much faster than our salaries are increasing. And so we want to solve that crisis. When I look at my life, that is the impact I think we can make is to solve housing affordability. Yeah. And how are you able to reduce the cost so much? Are you using like cheaper materials? Are you just having less people that aren't necessary in the process? Like, because obviously, you know, big construction companies will tell you the price is the price. This is the best price we can do it for. But you're saying, no, this price could be 30, you know, 50% less. So I'm wondering how you're able to get the cost so low. Yeah. So that's the number one question. People are like, well, are these, are these bad apartments? Are these like slumlords you're talking about? Hmm. The answer is no. We're actually producing some of the highest quality properties in our state right now. Uh, our latest project is a $100 million facility. This is just a beautiful facility, uh, one of the top here. Now, 
How do we actually solve that, though? Well, this industry, compared to other industries, has been very slow to progress and improve. If you look at manufacturing over the past 60 years, manufacturing has improved productivity by 760%. Yeah. Agriculture improved by 1,500%. Do you have a guess of what construction has done? Probably 20, 30%? 10% or basically oh. nothing. Oh, no. Horrendous, right? Like, we should be embarrassed as a society that we have allowed construction to have no meaningful impact in, in their improvements. And so there's so many reasons why this is. And what we're doing is we're just tackling reason after reason after reason and solving those fundamentally. Yeah. So you're, you're basically changing the way construction is done. You know, you're trying yeah. to get that next step up, just like we've had with technology. We went from flip phones to smartphones. You're trying to become almost the smartphone of the construction industry almost. Yeah, and I can give you an example too. You know, one thing in this construction industry is it's a very segmented space. Your owner is different than your developer, who's different than your general contractor. So the guys coordinating all of the construction, who's different than the companies doing the work. Your plumber is a different company from your electrician, who's different than your HVAC, who's also different than your suppliers and your manufacturers. So we started bringing that all under one roof. Now, imagine for a moment if construction were to build cars. The way it would work is the person installing the wheels, they worked for a different company than the one installing the windshield, they worked for a different company than the one installing the door. Now, of course, the door company would have been delayed on another project, which means they wouldn't be able to get to your site for a week. You're totally shut down for a week. And then when they do come out, they're upset because they only get to work on one car at a time where they want an entire batch of them, 100 or 200 cars available for them so they can just go do their work. But bringing it all in-house, we can eliminate that concept and we can start doing some really clever things by applying just the assembly line into construction. And right there, you can reduce the length of a project from 15 months down to nine months. But there, there are a lot of little techniques like that that we're bringing in. Yeah. So you're, you're vertically integrating everything. You're yeah. kind of like, right, this is how we get from a tenant being in the apartment, you know, from a building site. So, okay, how do we bridge that gap? Okay, we have everything in-house. We have a set team of people that show up, do the whole thing. And then from there, you're not just selling it on to people. You're then managing the spaces or like, you know, being a, I, I don't know what the correct word for it is, but, you know, like a, a facilities manager as well at the same time. Yeah, a property manager. So we right. own and manage the properties. And what's okay. really crazy, you can go to our sites and literally one end of the building can be completely done and they're actually leasing it up. You look down maybe a, a, a thousand feet or 300 yards in the other end of the building, it's just dirt right. because that work is so compressed. And, and yeah, it's, it's really neat to see. Right. Okay. So for you, this has been something you've been doing for nearly a decade, just over a decade. I want to jump back all the way back to the start. Mm. Talk me through the first Norhart development because I'm sure you were a lot more involved with that than you are with the ones now where you've got teams and processes and people. You were probably there on the site on day one and you know, there on day whatever, 100, 200, trying to, trying to get it done. So talk me through what that was like. Yeah, so if I go way, way back, back when my parents were still um, running it, it was literally just an eight-unit building. And if I go even back further than that, uh, we didn't even, or my parents weren't even going to do the building. Part of what made it happen was that my dad got kidnapped in Peru. 
and they lost everything. So there's a whole story there. But anyway, we got uh, started with that building, and I can remember we didn't have much money, and so my parents enlisted us kids for fun family outings where we would drive a half an hour to the local uh, uh, building materials store, and we'd fill up carts full of materials. And I remember pushing one cart and pulling another one as like a little <laughs> kid through the checkout line. And then my dad had this you know, four by eight trailer, not much bigger than a table. We just packed that thing as tall as we could, driving down the highway <laughs> to bring the materials to the site. But uh, you know, I, I very much lived it from picking up nails to moving things around and uh, slowly grew it from there. Okay. So I guess for me, having that kind of understanding of how it started and kind of what it's like now along those you know years of being in this industry there must have been things you saw people were doing wrong you know that you said about how there's that whole one person come in and does the electrics another person comes in and does that and then they sell it on to that people but i'm wondering what other little issues you saw in the construction industry that you were like kind of taken back by i'm like this is being done wrong mm. you know when i jumped well when i after i got out of college my dad and i worked together on the business and it wasn't Far long afterward, he actually passed away. Hmm. And it was a very tough moment, right? Because all of a sudden here, taking the small business on fully for myself. And uh, I didn't know a lot. If I'm really honest, <laughs> I know a lot more today than I did back then. I still have a lot more to go. But that inexperience was almost an asset. The reason is because I didn't know how things were supposed to be done. I could start asking a lot of those questions like, why are we doing it this way? Can we do that different? Can we change this? And there was nobody to tell me no, mm. right? I didn't yeah. have this bureaucracy or people that have been around a long time that said, no, Mike, that's a stupid idea. And so I think the first thing, one of the very early things that happened was almost on necessity, which is that uh, we had a plumbing contractor that we worked with. And the plumbing contractor came back to me and said, well, Sorry, Mike, market's a different place. We're now charging you three times as much. Mm. It's like, oh, I don't have any money. Like, I don't have the money for that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do. So we're like, um, well, could we become our own plumbers? Hmm. <laughs> like, why not try? So I went and bought a bunch of books on plumbing. Uh, we ended up hiring someone for the license part of it and bringing on some inexperienced people. And we were terrible that first year, right? We didn't mm. save much money. It was a lot of work and a lot of rework and a lot more rework after that. But what was amazing is we got past it and then it became a big asset to us because we figured out how to do it and we could inject it in the rest of our system. And that was sort of the start of bringing things in-house. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of little things that have happened over time like that that made us think we can do this better. We can change it. Yeah. And you were viewing your company as a playground rather than a prison. Because yeah. I feel like a lot of people, they start their business, they go, oh, these are the walls and I have to stay in between the walls and color in the lines. And you were like, yeah, I'm not really feeling that. You know, is that, is that like exactly how you were looking at it type thing? Yeah. You know, my perspective is life is short. How do you want to spend the minutes you have here on earth? Mm. And for me, a big part of that is I want to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world, right? I could care less about money, care less about fame, care less about the size of our company. I mean, someday I'm going to be buried and like, what are you going to do with money? You're going to shovel like $100 bills into my coffin? Like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. It just does not matter. I want to spend my life 
making an impact. And when you have that kind of perspective, some of the fear around failure and some of those boxes and those constraints go away because your biggest constraint is at some point you're going to die. Right. Don't waste the time fearing those other things. Make an impact. And that's how yeah. I see life. Yeah. And obviously you're making an impact on the price side of things, but you know, as well as that, seeing as you're the building's manager, from what I understand and the little research I've done, you're actually trying to make the resident experience much better by mm. having like an open dialogue with your residents. Is, is that kind of correct? Yeah, for sure. So there are three strategies. There's only three things that we focus on as a company. The very first is our staff and our people and our culture. And I can talk a lot about that. That you have to get Please right. do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the second strategy is disrupting the construction industry. It's really about driving down the cost and improving the efficiency of the industry. But strategy three is delighting the residents. What we are thinking about, and this is sort of the newest strategy for us, but what we're actively working on is how do we create the Apple of apartments? How do we create the Disney of apartments or the Google of apartments? And so we've got some amazing people we were able to snatch and get to work for us that are working on those concepts today. And I've seen some of the work and designs that they're putting together, and it is incredible. So today I would say we're in line with some of the best property managers, but our goal is to be so far beyond where everyone else is at. That experience is so much better. Uh, that's what we're working toward right now. So is that like by having smart homes that are, you know, fully integrated through an app or is that through, you know, having a way that I can feed back to you like, hey, uh, I find the door to be quite heavy or, you know, the I find this to be not clean all the time. Like I'm trying to see how you could be that far ahead of people and become, you know, the apple of this industry per se. Yeah. There, okay, there's a what it is is a lot of little things done right over time. Mm. So one example, like you mentioned, is all the little pain points down to like a door shutting. Does the door shut, latch, yeah. lock, soft, smooth, wonderful? Or are you shaking it back and forth to get the deadbolt to go through, <laughs> right? So making sure those things are out of the way, making sure that the service requests are at a minimum. And if they do get a service request, it's a matter of hours that people are there and your problem is fixed and it's fixed the first time. Um, but I think... At a bigger level, yeah, there's technology. So we're working on the smartwatch, being able to open all the doors to entire units. You don't have, a, have to have a key. Mm. Uh, smart home technology inside your unit. We have some of that in place today. and We're elevating it even further. So your lights, your thermostat, your uh, lock, everything is controlled in one spot. Even all of your utilities. Here's just a small one. In many properties, at least here where we're at, when you move in, you've got to sign up for your power, your water, your your, uh, your gas or your heating, your internet, all of that when you move in here is automatically done immediately for you. And it's just right there. You don't have to worry about any of those issues. But really thinking about things a step deeper, I think where we can take this is really thinking about community. Mm -hmm. You know, COVID hit and you have campuses like Google that have this amazing community space and this amazing uh, place you can work and connect and, and get a great vibe from everyone else. But now COVID hit, uh, people have learned that they really like, at a minimum, hybrid work, or in yeah. some cases, fully remote work. Yeah. But you lose the sense of community as a result of that. Where can you recreate that community? In your home. Mm. 
Mm. Right. And so we're starting to design our, our environments and spaces to focus on building that community. Everything from co-working space in our next building, we've got thousands of square feet that feel like a Google-esque uh, co-working space so you can interact with people to events to the, and this is where it goes back to people, the people you interact with on our staff and what kind of experience and connectivity that they provide you, which is really where that gem starts from. So yeah. that gives you some flavor of what they're working on. Yeah, I mean, you touched on there at the end about your staff, and I would really like to dive into that because one of my previous guests who everybody always listens to and talks about, he has a fully remote team in the Philippines, but what he says is he only wants A players. That's it. He wants people that are 10Xers and, you know, all the buzzwords that are out there, the best of the best, and he's willing to pay them the best of the best, you know, relative to where they are in the Philippines. And what I'm picking up from you is you're a similar type of person. You want the best of the best people and you have no problem paying them what they ask you for, if not more than that, just because you want their expertise in your business. Absolutely. The number one lesson I ever learned in life is that the best people, and when we say best here, again, this is not the flowery words. This is literally the best. Mm. The best people outperform average people by two, five, ten, even ten times as much. And so it's great that he hires people from the Philippines, but very honestly, they're, they're inexpensive. Even the top people in the Philippines are yeah. inexpensive. Put your money where your mouth is. Even here in the States, hire the very best people. And so we, uh, we pay top of market for all of our positions, even here in the States. We, uh, uh, we have top of market benefits. And so we look at Google and Netflix as sort of like benchmarks. What are they doing and what benefits from, that they have that we can bring in-house? But, and we'll, we'll literally, we'll pay to fly people across country every single week to work here in, the, in Minnesota. So oh, wow. Florida, Minnesota are like a thousand miles apart yeah, or maybe 2000 miles apart. And we'll fly people in every single week to come here because they're best in the world at their little niche of what they do. Mm. And if we're going to put our money where our mouth is, that's what it takes to have the best of the best people. Yeah. But when you have that kind of caliber of people, work is so much fun. And they start unlocking doors for you that you didn't know could be unlocked right. and start making things happen that are just incredible. And mm. so hands down, that's the number one principle we've learned. And there's so much that goes into to making that happen on a day-to-day -day basis, but that's critical. Yeah. I, I mean, when you have that reputation for hiring the best of the best, you naturally attract loads of people to come work for you. You know, if people oh, yeah. were to hear of you about, oh, I really want to work for this company because they have this and they have that. And how do you kind of sort through that to find the right fit for you? Like, I'm, I'm curious what your, your company culture is, because it sounds very modern, but this business has been running before the, the modern principles were really accepted by the wider people. Yeah, we often say we want to be the Google of construction, right? Right, and there is, in this industry, there's there's some really good players. There's a lot of mediocre players, but honestly, there's no Google of construction. There's no one that's taken our space to that kind of level, hmm. and that's that's the kind of culture that's kind of feel we we're building. Um, for hiring people, yeah, we get a a lot, a lot, a lot of applicants, and we actually have a talent recruiting team hmm. that is uh, fourteen people. 14 recruiters on our, our company, which is a lot. Right. Uh, and the reason we do that is the best people are not looking for work. Yeah. Right? So we actually build out databases of like, what are all the, the companies out there that have the talent that we're looking for? And who are the best people in their organizations? We work to build relationships over time. 
And then as positions open up, like, all right, this is the person that fits well for that position. That's the kind of game that we're playing that's at a much higher level. Uh, When we do hire people, many people, not all, but many people, we actually hire on as a trial period. Mm. So not only it's there's thousands of applicants for a position Uh, to get through all the interview process and stuff and actually get an offer for a trial period is really, really hard. But once you do that, you come on site, we're very open that you have two weeks to show who you are as a person. Right. And your coworkers on your team, your coworkers at the end of two weeks will will review you and say, okay, how do you line up to our values? Mm. We have the we have five core values that we line up to. And are you fighting to be best in the world of what you're doing? Mm. You don't have to be best today, but are you on that journey to be best in the world of what you're doing? Right. And your coworkers will then decide whether or not you make the team. Yeah. Right? And so um, even then, only about 50% of people, despite working really hard for the interview process, actually make it through the trial period. Right. But I would say it doesn't stop there because do all of that, if we do it all well, we still screw up some of our hires, right? Mm-mm. And uh, what we say then, and we stole this from Netflix, is the keeper test. The question is, if somebody, if a particular employee was to quit tomorrow, how hard would you fight to keep them? Mm. If the answer is, I would fight tooth and nail. I would work overtime to make sure that I could keep you as an employee. Yeah. Awesome. You're the right person. Mm-hmm. If it's anything short of that, mm-hmm. then that means you may not be the right fit. Right. And so that's a really high bar, right? You have to be an A player. And so what we follow that up with, though, is average performance gets a generous severance. Okay. And so if you... If you're just an average performer, if you're a solid B plus, A minus, but you're not getting to A plus level, that's okay. There are many great places you can go work. It may just not be a fit here. Mm-hmm. We're going to help you really well on the way out. And we'll give you generous severance. We'll help you find a job. We'll usually give you some good amount of time to find that job. But we're very unabashful by the fact that if you're not up to the kind of caliber that most of the people are here, then it's just not a good fit. And I can't let that I can't let those people stay here and erode the culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm loving the way that you view your company like a tech company because there's there's so many construction companies out there, right? There's always somebody building something for cheaper than someone else or more expensive and however you want to view it. And I feel like you're in this state where you're like, I'm not competing with people. I'm building my thing my way and the vision is there and that's that's it. No one else has this vision type thing. And I'm I'm curious is this because of your computer science background? Why you want to kind of view your company in a, a, a tech standpoint, or is it just something that you kind of acquired along the way? Mm. You know, I, my tech background definitely has a big impact in that uh, uh, it's giving me a lot of exposure to places like Google. And uh, I just love technology. So we incorporate it a lot into what we do, especially this industry, which tends to be, um, not super excited about new technologies. Yeah, uh, we as our we are as a company very much so. But I, I think probably the bigger factor, just in the people I know in this industry, is they're very. I don't want to be negative, but they're very money focused. Right. Which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what drives an economy. Uh, but for us, we really aren't money focused. We're impact focused. Right. Yes, we have to pay well. Like. We're always going to make sure we're paying top of market. We want to support our employees as well. That's not why we're here. We're here to fix housing affordability and create amazing 
products for our customers. Mm-hmm. And so when you get people that are that kind of focused, you have more than just their hands and their work. You have their heart and their soul, and that lets you change things that you couldn't otherwise change. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm absolutely loving this mission. Like, I, the more you talk about it, the more I'm like sold on it. I'm like, oh gosh, wh- will he expand to the UK type thing? I, I don't know. But I guess another thing I'm picking up on here is, you know, with the, the tech view you've mentioned, Netflix, Apple, Google, that type of business or those type of businesses, they're all about scale. They're all about growth. And those three companies, you know, in particular, are all unicorn companies. So I'm wondering for you, do you see your company doing the whole hockey stick growth and then becoming a unicorn? Or are you kind of on this journey of we'll get to one milestone, we'll get to another milestone? Because at the beginning of the of the recording, you said you have a $100 million development. And that that's a very big development. You know, that's that's a lot of pressure there. But it sounds like that's just kind of like the next level for you. That's all you want to do next is $100 million, two, 250, you know, and, and build it up that way. Yeah, we're, we've definitely been on that hockey stick growth. Uh, over the last few years, we've been doubling in size roughly every single year. Mm. Um, so with growth comes great challenge, and a scale is a, a really another beast to get into. But uh, but yeah, no, we definitely want to grow. And the, the reason is, again, not for money. It's not for size of a company. It's not for fame. It's when you think about if we really want to solve housing affordability, we're mm. not really going to solve that. If we're only producing $100 million buildings, you right. need to get to uh, billions uh, scale in order to have a big enough impact in the market to solve this nationwide and maybe someday worldwide. Yeah. So for now, the vision is, you know, just keep going on that, you know, lovely year on year growth, that 2x growth, that however many x growth. But I'm curious because you haven't mentioned Amazon, right? And there's one thing that Jeff Bezos is very famous for saying, which is he has a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, 20-year plan, and a 100-year plan. You seem like the kind of person who is on that same thought path. So yeah. uh, what is the five, 10, 20, and 100-year plan for yourself, Mike, and, and Norhart? Yeah, so the, boy, 100-year plan, that's pretty awesome. I don't have a 100-year plan, but I do have a 10-year plan. Okay. Our 10-year plan is to reach 192,000 units with a production rate of 60,000 units a year at that point. Right. That's the point at which we start start having a meaningful impact on the housing market nationwide. Give it another five or 10 years, and now we probably are at the point of solving housing affordability in the, in the country. Take another, another 10 years after that, we can start looking nationwide or uh, worldwide. Right. Okay. That's a, that's a great place to be in, to be honest. Like the way, the way you're thinking is, is in a very kind of unique way. Most construction people are like, right, get it built, get it sold, get it filled uh, and get out type thing. But something that I want to ask you about, and uh, I don't really know if this is, this is the right kind of way to word it, but I'll, I'll ask it anyways, is. You're, you're a CEO, you're, you're CEO of a very sizable company. How, how do you manage? How do you cope? What is, what is the secret mm-hmm. source to keeping this show on the road? Because you're, you know, you're the head of the, of the body of the organization. Yeah, the, uh, I mean, the simple answer, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound overly simplistic, but it's absolutely the truth, is hire the right people. Right. right? If you have amazing people you work with, I can be here talking to you rather than out in the field making sure everything is actually happening. Hmm. You know, there, 
there is tremendous stress that comes with everything because there's always problems. We talk about this. I just out of a meeting this morning with, uh, with uh, some of our team members. Like we have 10,000 problems. We will always have 10,000 problems because right. if it started going down any lower than that, I'm not pushing the organization fast enough into new spheres, mm. right? And so with problems comes stress. But what I have learned and what brings my stress down quite a bit is even though I don't always have the answer to every single one of those problems, I know I have the team and I have the people working on solving those issues and the caliber and the capability of the team is so high that even if I don't have a clear answer today, I know that tomorrow we will. Right. And because of that, I've seen it over and over and over again. Now I have, uh, I can sleep well at night because I could, I have trust in the capacity of the team to solve problems. Yeah. I, I, you spoke about problems there. I'm curious, this could be recently, this could be in you know the last 10, 20 years or whatever, but what was like something that you failed at or something that went wrong that, you know, kind of really impacted you or really impacted the business that you were man you managed to overcome? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, probably the one of the most impactful ones to me was not long after my dad passed away. Because mm. back at this point, I, I'm still the one sure of myself, right? Like, can I do this? Am I good enough? Like, those are all things going through my head. Right. And we were building a building uh, in Minnesota here. And the city actually shut us down twice, not long right. after my dad passed away. Because they look at me like, Mike, he's a pipsqueak kid. Like, there's no way he can do this. And the second time they shut us down and said, Mike, you need to hire someone who actually knows what he's doing. And so they forced me to hire on a project manager. And uh, I only had a few days to figure it out. Otherwise, my whole crew didn't have work. Mm. Uh, so we didn't, we kind of failed a little bit on who we hired there. So behind the scenes, here I am trying to solve the problems and I'm working with some people that are very good at what they do. We're all solving problems. And uh, boy, it's just one problem after another, after another. In fact, at the end of the project, we had a leak in the water main, mm. very small pinhole leak, but a leak in the water main. And this water main is thousands of feet or hundreds of meters long, all buried, you know, uh, 10 feet or three meters underground. Like we, uh, we're in a troubling situation. How do we find a pinhole leak in that much pipe? Yeah. And I remember just like in my, you know, fancy, a, a nicer tire out there in the pit with the excavator, like pleading with them to stay there. We were, you know, early in the morning till really late at night, every single day, day in and day out. And I think he didn't like me there, <laughs> but, uh, um, Boy, I, we were in kind of despair trying to find that leak. And luckily, eventually we did. And then literally uh, a couple of days before we're about to open, the city staff came out for like a surprise inspection. They told me, they're, like, Mike, there's no way you're getting this all done. Mm. You're going to fail. This is all going to fall apart. Uh, and then the final day hit, we had, it was like a half a dozen inspectors, including the head building official of that city was there. And they spent half a day uh, inspecting every little nook and cranny of this building. And at the end of it, we're down in the basement, this, park, this big parking garage, and the head building official pulls me aside and says, Mike, this is the best opening of a building that I've ever seen in this city. 
It's like, oh, finally, like some validation that we could actually do what we needed to do. And that was sort of a, a turning point for me in my confidence and also the way people looked at our company, um, which is just great to see. But it was a lot of failure before getting to that point. Yeah, I mean, a part of being an entrepreneur, business owner, CEO, whatever you know, whatever stage you're at in your company building process, it's all about failing. And you know, some people say fail fast or learn from your failures, but either way, they're gonna come. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what's crazy is, anytime we start something, we are going to be terrible at it. I mm. promise you, your yeah. first attempt will be terrible. That is normal. Mm. That is human. And what we what happens is we get in our mind that first attempt at something, something doesn't go right. We screw up and we're like, oh shoot, I was never meant to do this. I am not good enough at this. And you start this negative like mindset starts creeping in. Unless you push that back, you, you need to push that back. Because you need to fail, fail, fail again, fail some more, keep failing, receiving feedback, and eventually like, oh, I I got this. But that's that's the that's how it works, right? And so being okay with that is a really important point to your own personal growth. Mm. I mean, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and, you know, C-suite levels of people. And everybody has their weird, quirky thing that they do. You know, they have the morning routine or the nighttime routine or the Saturday routine. You know, for me, I wake up quite early in the morning. That's not because someone told me to. It's just how I've always been. I started going to the gym when I was younger. I don't really go to the gym so much now, but... That whole waking up at half five, six in the morning thing is just kind of inbuilt into me. And, you know, what I do in that time isn't really too structured or rigid, but it's all about having that jump on the day type thing. Mm. So I'm wondering for you, Mike, you know, do you have any kind of secret sauce or routine or something that you do that might interest the listeners? Yeah, my uh, my life is at its core. I have like a framework for how I live my life and it's very based in routine. What's neat about that is like you establish the routine and then you can tweak it over time. Like, oh, this right. changed that, changed this, and keep it getting better. But you're, if you're constantly having to rethink, like, how am I going to take the approach today or how, what am I going to do on Saturday? Uh, it, it just it doesn't allow you to be as effective. So I probably take this more extreme than most people would. Um, but uh, so I have my work day during the day. I get home. I've got my time with my kids and we have a bedtime routine. After that, I make my food and I only eat once a day, mm -hmm. only for dinner. Right. Saves me time. There's some benefits to intermittent fasting. And I have a, the, the beginning of my dinner is always exactly the same. And then I have documentaries I'm watching on the TV at the same time so I can learn. Uh, and then uh, as I'm going to bed, I put on YouTube and there's so much you can learn on YouTube. Yeah. So uh, I, I put on things that I can learn as I'm falling asleep. Then, uh, on, uh, for workouts, I've got a workout routine that I do every single week. I run 15 miles every single Sunday. I do weight training. I, I, you know, certain days of the week, I know what time that's going to be. Um, and even the weekends, I know, you know, this is the time I interact with my family. Here's where I'm going to be focused on the work I need to get done to get catched up on for the week. So, yeah, it's just a lot of little things that I think my wife would say I'm too extreme, but uh, it really helps me for my life. You know, when I was in college, there was. Uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to see how hard I could push myself. Mm. And uh, uh, so in my college, a full course load was 16 credits right. is the way it worked. So that was a full-time, full course load. You could take up to 20 credits without um, 
additional approval from the university. If you went past 20 credits, you need approval. You know, I would often go to 21 or 22, what have you. But one semester, I just I saw how far I could push it. And I pushed it. And I did this for one quarter. I, I did it to 27 credits. Right. And then when I took the hardest classes I could, the hardest one was honors abstract algebra. It was oh, a graduate gosh. level, honors level course. <laughs> Degree level math. entirely proofs, <laughs> right? And this was way over my head. There was, there was a literal, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. There were literal geniuses in the class. These yeah. guys are going to change mathematics, that kind of level. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, what I learned through that is one of the routines I always had to maintain was sleep. Mm. Right, so I would uh, always make sure I had, you know, bedtime happened. I I went to bed. I woke up when I needed to. Everything else in my life could be chaotic, but I always make sure to maintain that sleep, and that helps ground at least for me. Yeah, you mentioned three things there that I want to touch on, but I'm I'm going to skip over one because it's okay. it's very important, and everybody knows this. Exercise absolutely key. Fifteen miles, you're a star. I couldn't run that five if I tried. So you know that's great. You said sleep as well. I kind of put that in with exercise because it's you know workout recovery. Then you mentioned about being able to tolerate stress or like pushing your limits. That also kind of feeds into the exercise side of things, but also. The, 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 when I say stress, I'm saying it in, in air quotes almost, but you do inter intermittent fasting, right? Yeah. This is something that's quite new and, you know, new agey. And people say, oh, does it work? Doesn't it work? And you said it, it saves you time. But I'm wondering, that one meal you're eating, are you always kind of strict with what it is? Or is it kind of like there's a bit of flex and play there? Because you said you've got kids and a wife and all that kind of stuff. So they may not want to eat, you know, the same meal every day. But are you that dialed in that you're eating the same thing all the time? Yeah, my uh, wife and kids eat a slightly different meal than me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I spend a fair amount of time researching health. Because, again, if I'm trying to change this industry, if I can give myself another year or two or three yeah. to live healthfully, mm -hmm. I can make a bigger impact in society. So uh, like, I mean, if you've heard of Dr. Sin, um, Sinclair, okay. uh, David Sinclair, he's fantastic, mm -hmm. talks a lot about longevity. He does a lot of research for Harvard. Mm -hmm. on, and, and they've done studies and actually found that you can live longer by changing some of your behaviors. Mm -hmm. And one of those behaviors is intermittent fasting. Right. It's one of the best proven ways to extend lifespan, which is why I started it. And so I do that once. I only eat once a day. And in fact, I, I only eat six times a week. So there's right. one day a week that I just skip entirely. Right. Um, and for my meals, it starts off with I like tomatoes, it's like little Roman tomatoes. I can start popping. Yeah. And then I start making a salad, which is uh, in some disgusting to some people, but kale yeah, and like a spring green mix. And mm -hmm. then I have like a hummus based dressing, very, very little bit of that to mm -hmm. kind of give it a little bit of flavor. Uh, and then I have carrots and um, cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> I know it sounds so appetizing. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have uh, follow that up with olives and then oatmeal, just steel cut oatmeal with no sugar, no nothing like that. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what, oh, and the fruit is how I finish that off. So that's my start of my meal every day. Yeah. Then I do want to live life a little bit. So the second half of my meal, I mix it up. I still try to keep that uh, pretty healthy, but I'll, I'll mix it up and have a little bit more fun with the second half. Okay. Are you, are you vegetarian? Is, is that also one of the secrets to extending life or is that just <laughs> something that I've, I've kind of picked up on randomly? Uh, I did go um, pretty vegetarian for a while. I do focus that route at some of the 
the the um, studies show that there's some benefit to that. But I'm not exclusive because I still want to live some life. So yeah. So I do eat meat as well, but uh, not not a lot. Okay. Well, following on from that, you know, you've done a lot of research into these things, and you mentioned you, you know, you're watching your documentaries and your YouTube channels, and I'm assuming, you know, if you're driving in the car you've got a podcast on rather than music per se if you're on your own so you you are like me and you love learning and i'm well also i'm picking up on the fact you said when you wanted to learn plumbing you went out and got books and taught yourself i'm wondering what is your kind of approach to learning because my approach to learning right now is you know i'm i'm young as they say i'm in my late 20s so any book's a good book but also if a good book you know stops being good i've got the the pleasure to kind of get rid of it whereas for you you're very much kind of at this level where you've probably ingested a lot of things and now it's about digesting all that knowledge and being able to go, go deeper into the places that actually interest you or that you've seen benefit so i'm wondering what your kind of approach to learning is right now yeah you touched on something really important which is you can book learn something but unless you put it in practice it's not going to impact your life mm. another aspect is um you just don't have a lot of time, yeah. right? So you got to make sure you're spending time on the things and the learning resources that are most going to impact your life. Mm. And what I have found, again, over and over again, is the best resources are way better than the average ones. Mm -hmm. And then the best people are way better than the average ones. And so we will actually find world experts at things. Uh, for example, for concrete, we found a guy who's like a savant at concrete. Yeah. He can make concrete that cleans itself, <laughs> right? Like it's crazy what you can do. Yeah. But the only a small sliver of people really have knowledge of that level. Um, so we bring in, we literally fly in world experts to work with us. Another thing I found incredibly valuable is like mastermind client classes. Mm. Some of the world's best people put together a mastermind class. Right. And what's great about that is not only are you learning, but those classes really bring it from learning into application. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I'm doing a number right now, one with Disney, another one with, uh, with PR, for example. Yeah. So I'm learning the world of public relations and getting on news media and uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. The concepts, yeah, they're, they're simple, right? It's not that hard to figure out how to go pitch people and where to go and what to do. The, the differences in the little nuances, like exactly how to pitch, when to reach out, like what is it like from a media person's perspective? Yeah. And having coaches that you're working with that are literally gatekeepers of some of the world's biggest uh, shows is incredibly valuable to hear their feedback and their pitch to make it way, uh, significantly improve it before you send it out to the real gatekeepers. And so I really like masterminds for that reason. Okay. And how could you go about finding a mastermind? Because, you know, I think most of the listeners can, you know, agree with me here. You're at a quite a high level. So you want someone who's that level above you to be able to teach you what they know. So how do you go about finding a mastermind at, at you know, the stage you're at now? Yeah, I wish there was some like master website that has told you here the best ones. And there <laughs> isn't. <laughs> um, there is a little bit of like, you're just getting yourself out there that you have to do. So uh, at night I watch YouTube videos and I will explore the world of YouTube, right? And, yeah. and the things that I'm interested and curious about. And so sometimes those YouTube videos are not really that helpful to my life, mm -hmm. but other times it leads me down a rabbit hole. Like when I'm talking about health, Dr. David Sinclair is probably one of the best. And there's another half dozen that I'd highly recommend. 
But I didn't know that originally until I really started exploring that space. Yeah. And so I think step one is just getting out there, looking at all the resources, digging into all of that, and then uh, and then starting to see what's out there. And then sometimes you just have to take a leap of faith. Um, I have had classes and things I've jumped into, and like a couple of years later, I realized there's something better. And that's that's just part of the process. Mm. But but keep at it and put the time, energy into and into doing that research. Yeah, and you know clearly you know judging by your exercise routine your diet routine your learning routine and obviously the fact you're trying to grow a business you're all about self-improvement and you know whether that self is yourself or you know your business which is part of yourself i'm wondering what is the most impactful piece of self-help or self-improvement material you've come across whether that's someone saying something to you or a podcast that you listen to regularly or a book that you've read you know that would be amazing to hear Boy, I don't know if there's any like one silver bullet that just changes everything. Mm. Um, I think the I'll give you a book recommendation. It's uh, No Rules Rules from Netflix. I have that book. You have it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's right here. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I that have it. That is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, that changed a, a lot of the way I see life. Yeah. Um, I think the the number one principle I ever learned actually partly came from that book, which is hire the very best people. Yeah. And it's so, so true. That changed that changed my world more than anything else. Okay. Um, managerial techniques, probably uh, there's a resource called manager-tools.org mm-hmm. that I learned a ton from. Just like how to be a good manager. Things like a one-on-one. Yeah. If there's one silver bullet to management, I would say it's one-on-ones. Um, there are uh, good to great. Have you read that one by Jim Collins? Oh, I've been recommended that by somebody, but I'm not. Mm. I'm not at that stage where I'm managing people yet, so I don't think I need that good to great yet. But continue. Oh, there, there's a lot of Jim Collins. I love because he takes it. Many books are written from like here's my experience, yeah. which is great. But Jim Collins is a researcher. I think he's from Stanford, mm-hmm. where they look and say, okay, scientifically. Here's a lot of good companies. Here's a lot of bad ones. What did they do different? Yeah. Right? And they actually look to answer very specific questions. And through that, there's like half a dozen principles per each one of his books that are like, wow, that's it's so simple. But unless you think about it, it, it has a big impact. Uh, one of those from one of his later books is, is called Fire Bullets, Not or Then Cannibals. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you want to try a lot of things out, really explore the market until you find the one that hit. And then once it hit, then pour a lot of resources into that one item. So uh, those are those are some things. And, uh, one other big one I would say is getting your culture right. Yeah. Understanding your purpose, which is why you exist, your mission, which is what you do, your values, which are who you are, strategies, how you accomplish that, goals, which is where you want to be and by when. Uh, and then for us, we also have principles and habits. And understanding that really well, codifying that, and then being clear with people as you onboard people, um, those are some very important things too. That is probably some of the best advice we've had in this podcast in a long time, if I'm honest, because mm. it comes from a well-researched place, which I love. One thing yeah. I want to ask you is because I asked you, you know, what's your favorite, what's your best, what are you floating around with right now? What is your current YouTube recommended looking like and what's the book on your nightstand? Just so I can kind of get a vibe of where you're at at the moment. 
<clears throat> yeah, uh, we try to read a book a week, and the book this week I'm really loving, so I probably read it a couple of times. It's called, I think it's called Multipliers. Okay. Let me just double check that for us. But the essence of the book is um, how to, yeah, multipliers. There are multipliers or people that improve your capability to do work, like great managers and, and great coworkers or great other people you work with that just inspire you. They make you a better person. Yeah. But then there are also diminishers. Mm-hmm. There are people that make you not want to give your best effort forth, that make you feel ah, rough and like this is not a good experience and make you emotionally down. So what is that difference? What, what makes a, a diminisher versus a multiplier? And that's what that book goes into. But I think the most impactful thing for me was learning about accidental diminishers. Mm-hmm. This is people that are trying to be multipliers, which I'm trying to be a multiplier, but that can be diminishers from time to time. Yeah. And so identifying what are those things in you that are actually negative impl- impacting the people around you. Because at the end of the day, like, I don't want people's hands. I want people's hearts and souls. I want their full energy and passion. Right. And so in order to get that, I need to be the kind of leader that insp- supports and inspires that. And so Multipliers has been a fantastic book to illuminate that difference. Mm. And seeing as you're talking about, you know, not just having people's hands, but having their hearts and souls, I'm wondering, what is it about what you do that brings you the most joy? Mm. I think it's real. The, I think for me, it's the journey. You know, look at where we want to be as a goal. We want to, we want to make this big impact, and certainly that will be great, and it'll make me feel good <laughs> that we actually made that impact. But I think day to day, what I really enjoy is the journey. It's it's the challenges that we face. You know, a lot of people look at challenges and say, "Oh, these are terrible. This is stressful." To me, they're fun, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a new crazy thing: we're we're doing steel wall panels right now, or precast concrete. Like those are crazy things. There were crazy ideas of a year ago and now we're doing it, right? And yeah, there's a lot of pain involved, but taking on those challenges and changing the world and making the incremental improvements, I don't know, it's just fun for me. Where can the people find you and your business online? Yeah, you can find us by visiting norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T.com. We've got two new kind of things we're launching. One is an invest platform. So if any of this sound stuff sounded interesting and you want to be involved as an investor, there's opportunities for that now. And then the second is our new podcast we're creating called Becoming a Unicorn. It's about the journey of small businesses growing to billion-dollar enterprises. And we want to open that up and look at the good, bad, and the ugly of what it took to get there. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.